chapter 43 and commencing from verse 15. Isaiah 43, please. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, who made a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariots and horses, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And we know the Lord will bless to us the reading of his precious word this morning. Who is speaking determines very much on our reaction to what has been said. If we're being honest with ourselves, there are times we have dismissed what has been said, not because of what has been said, but because of who has spoken the words. And in this few verses that we have read, we are made aware that God is speaking. It is a problem that God has had to deal with regarding man from the very beginning of time. For we are reminded even in the Garden of Eden that Eve questioned what God said. And man, through the passage of time, have questioned what God says and what he is meaning. But Isaiah, as the prophet of God, speaking to the children of Israel, firstly establishes from the very outset that it is not he who is speaking but it is God. It may be his voice the people are hearing, but it is the words of the Lord that is being spoken. Isaiah called to be the Lord's spokesperson to Israel at a time when Israel's relationship was not what it should have been. Isaiah, I like the King James Version, Verse 14 of that chapter 43 says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah referred to as the Messianic prophet, one who ministered over a period of some 50, 55 years. His ministry going from about 745 years B.C., John, writing in his gospel, speaking of Isaiah, says that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and spoke of him. Tradition has it that Isaiah's father was Amos, A-M-O-Z, not A-M-O-S, the prophet. He was a brother of Amaziah. This would make Isaiah first cousin to King Uzziah, grandson of King Joash, and thus of royal descent. He wrote more than just the book of Isaiah, although those writings have not been preserved. Second Chronicles 26 tells us that he wrote the book on the life of Uzziah. Again in Second Chronicles 32, a book of the kings of Israel and Judea. But while he has written books that have not been preserved, he has written one 
that we are privileged to have within God's word this morning. He is quoted in the New Testament more than any other prophet. History tells us he died the death of a martyr. King Maas, idolatrous degrees, was a result of his martyrdom. He was said he was fastened between two planks. He was sawn asunder. And this is thought to be referred to in Hebrews 11 and verse 37. Manasseh, the son of King Hezekiah of Judea, became king at 12 years of age. His advisors used him to stop the reforms in worship and morals begun by Hezekiah. He practiced human sacrifice, even to the extent of sacrificing his own son. The prophet attributes the fall of Jerusalem to the cruelty and superstitions that was allowed to flourish during most of his 55 years' reign. In 2 Kings chapter 21, we are made aware that God said what he will do to Jerusalem and why. He said that men, when they hear of it, their ears shall tingle. Manasseh was taken prisoner briefly by the Assyrians in his later years, finally released, realized, sorry, finally realizing his disobedience to God, was allowed by God to return to Jerusalem where he remained, uh, where he mended his ways before he died. For Isaiah, it was a turbulent time when he came to his position as prophet. For 150 years before Isaiah, the Assyrian Empire had been expanding. As early as 840 BC, Israel under Jehu had begun to pay tribute, to pay taxes to the Assyrians. And while Isaiah was yet a young man in 734 BC, Assyria carried away all the north of Israel. Thirteen years later, Samaria fell, and the rest of Israel was carried away. Then a few years later, the Assyrians came on into Judea, destroying 46 walled cities and carrying away some 200,000 captives. Finally, in 701 BC, when Isaiah was an old man, the Assyrians were stopped before the walls of Jerusalem by the angel of God. As we read in Isaiah 37, the angel moved in. He slew 185,000 Assyrians. The scriptures bear reference and this statement, behold, they were all dead corpses. Thus Isaiah's whole life was spent under the shadow of the threatenings of the Assyrian power, and he witnessed the ruin of his entire nation at their hand, except the city of Jerusalem. And the deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrians was thought to be because of the prayers of Isaiah and by his advice to King Hezekiah, and by the direct miraculous invention of God that the dreaded Assyrian army was defeated. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, lived for 20 years later, but never again came against Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Just a little background. 
of the circumstances and situation. Isaiah, in verse 15, bears record of the words when he said, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. God is speaking through Isaiah to the nation of Israel some hundred, 734 years before the birth of Christ. And we rejoice in this 21st century, in the year 2012, that God is still speaking today. He may not be speaking through Isaiah the prophet, but he is speaking. He is speaking through pastors, ministers, church leaders, prophetical channels. He's speaking through the ordinary Christian. He speaks to us as individuals in that still small voice but he also speaks through his word. Many are debating the relevance of God's word in this 21st century. They're saying, well, what is a book that covers thousands of years ago and what was said and what happened thousands of years ago got to do with this present day in which we find ourselves? It's not just the world debating, but it is the Christian community. And we find that foundations that have been the very basis of our Christian beliefs for many years are being watered down, are being dismissed, are being flaunted. Some, as they approach the Scriptures, they approach it as a history book, and that it is, for it covers a vast space of time. It contains much information. But if we read it as a history book, then we get out of it what we get out of reading a history book. Some read it as they would a novel, a book of fiction. Well, if we approach it in that way, we get out of it what we get out of reading a novel, a work of fiction. But if we approach it as the all-inspired, infallible word of God, God will speak to us from his word. Jesus promised, and Matthew recorded the promise in Matthew 11 and verse 27, in which he said, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal it. God, Jesus has promised, he will reveal God, and it can be found in his word. Isaiah writing in chapter 40 and verse 8. as to what to remember. 
when he speaks of the army being destroyed in the sea. He takes them back some 525 years. He takes them back to a period in their history when they're found in the land of Egypt. The experience of Egypt was a pleasant experience that turned sour. When Jacob and his descendants, as we read in Genesis 46, entered into Egypt. God had promised he would take Jacob into Egypt and he would bring him out of Egypt. The coming out took some 430 years later on. 300 of those years were pleasant. 300 of years, the nation of Israel prospered. When they went into Egypt, they numbered 70. When they came out of Egypt 430 years later on, there was 3 million. Even under the taskmasters for 130 years, they still prospered. They still grew numerically. Their herds and so on grew and multiplied. Evidence that even in an adverse situation, when God's hand is upon you, you will prosper. You will not fail. You will stand. Praise his wonderful name. But in that period of 130 years, the nation of Israel found themselves in a vice, in a grip, in a situation that they could not free themselves from. With all the best thinking in the world, with all the best efforts that they could muster, they could not... Uh, uh, take themselves out of that situation. They could not solve the problem. But we praise God that God had a plan and God had a man found in Moses. And God, through Moses, brought about their release from bondage. They didn't deserve it. But God had made a promise to Abraham that he would make of his descendants, a great nation, he would bring them to a promised land. And God was obliged, for God is not a liar. God will honor his word, praise his wonderful name. And as I thought of Egypt, and I thought of how God worked his plan, the 10 plagues, the thought that came to me was this, well, God, why 10 plagues? Why didn't you cut to the chase? Why didn't you just do the angel of death? That one surely would have solved the problem. And then I decided I better read the account. For I found myself, particularly during the night, a thought has come to me. I've made up a sermon. I get up in the morning and I go to open my Bible and I suddenly realize that what I thought the text said, it didn't say. So I says, I better not fall into that trap this time. And what I discovered was this that God had given instruction to Moses when he had finished. As we find in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, God said, By this ye shall know that I am the Lord. Again, in Exodus chapter 8, and verse 22, God says, In order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. And again, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord the Lord. That's why. The very magicians of Pharaoh, of, of Egypt, Pharaoh, 
in chapter 8 and verse 19 says, this is the finger of God. And I believe that as God worked out his plan of bringing the children of Israel out of captivity, he was reacquainting himself with his people. But also he was reaching out to the nation of Egypt. This is our God. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He didn't harden the people's hearts. And while it's not recorded about the Egyptians, how many turned to faith in God, how many believed in him, I believe in eternity it will be revealed. For God was outworking a plan, not only, I believe, for the nation of Israel, but for Egypt itself. And I see Egypt as the world. God reaching out. God making an effort. They may not have deserved it, but God loved them. God cared. God was going to reach out to them. Praise his wonderful, wonderful name. In getting, in bringing about these ten plagues, I believe God was reacquainting the nation of Israel with himself. And as they thought, they were reminded of his greatness. They were reminding of an all-knowing God. They were reminded of a God with whom all things are possible. They were reminded of a God who was interested in them, who was concerned about them. They were reminded of a God, as the children's course says, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. God had proven while they were in Egypt, and as they brought them out of Egypt, and as they brought, he brought them through the Red Sea, even in those two situations, that with God, all things were possible. God was preparing. And as I thought of this, I thought of today. I believe God's preparing. God's preparing his people and God's reaching out to the world. God says to us in the 20, this 21st century, remember. Remember what? Remember our great deliverance. For the deliverance of the children of Israel in Egypt, God sent ten plagues for our great deliverance. He sent his son, Jesus. John reminds us, does he not, in John 3 and 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but hath everlasting life. But it didn't finish there. It goes on to say, God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We quote it. We quote it as the gospel in a nutshell. But sometimes I feel we just glibly quote it. We don't fully appreciate it. We don't fully take time to meditate upon it and let God impress upon us our great deliverance. For we were like the children of Israel in Egypt. We tried to free ourselves. We tried to outwork the situation. We tried turning over a new leaf. We tried changing our lives, our lifestyles. We may have succeeded for a short period of time, but then we failed. And it was only when we realized that the answer was Jesus. We're not having to go back 535 years to remember 
maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever it is with you. But as we go back and we remember that moment, that time when it dawned upon us, the realization, hey, you are not going to succeed unless you put your trust in Jesus. And that moment in time when we acknowledged we were sinners, we were hopeless, we were lost, we couldn't help ourselves. And when we looked to Jesus and Him, we saw our Savior. When we asked Him to forgive us our sins and to save us, and He did, He saved us, and we started upon a journey. Can I say to you, the children of Israel being freed from Egypt was not the end of it. It was only the start of a journey. It had its ups and downs. It had its problems. It had its difficulties. Some of them were of their own making. But God was faithful. He brought them on a journey, and He brought them to the promised land. And God has promised that if we remain faithful to Him, He will bring us to heaven and to home. Our great deliverance. God said, remember. The psalmist writing in Psalm 27 says, I had fainted on this. I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I enjoy conversation with those I term senior, senior citizens. Those are right few years older than myself. But I am amazed and thrilled when they go back in time and they start to reminisce. They talk about the day, early days as they refer to it, when they got saved, when there wasn't the prosperity there is today, and how God not only saved them, not only kept them, but how God met their needs. I remember testimony of one man and their family were heading to bed that night. There was no food in the house. There was nothing for the breakfast. And he and his wife had prayed. And he, he said, his plea was, well, Lord, I'm not asking for myself or my wife. I'm asking for the children. And they went up to bed, but he couldn't rest. And he came down, checking behind the door, seeing if there was something lying on the mat. Nothing. Back up to bed, tried to sleep, came down again. This happened several times. And he says, eventually, when he up to bed, he fell asleep. And he woke some hours later, and immediately he jumped out of bed. He rushed down to the front door, and there on the mat was an envelope with money in it. He believed God, and God met the need. I remember another dear lady saying to me, you know, at a time when married women didn't work, and deaconesses would have visited the mothers and their children during the day when the husband was at work, they would have come, they would have spent time with them, they may have helped a little around the house and with the children. There would be a time of a cup of tea, reading of the scripture, and time of prayer. And on leaving, one would have slipped a half a crown into the hand of the mother. I worked that out about 25p in today's money. But that was God's provision for the next day. I remember another lady sharing with me her husband had had an accident. He was lying at home ill for quite a number of weeks, no money coming in. And where she got her groceries, the gentleman was a believer. And he told her, just you come in as normal. 
You order what you normally order, and we'll worry about that at a later date. God's provision. Others testifying of people turning up to visit. And they just said, well, the Lord told me to bring some potatoes, bring a cabbage, bring some vegetables. And they felt a little uncomfortable about it, but that was God's provision. And while they can look back, they can also look to the present day and they can say, my circumstances may have changed, my needs may have changed, but God has remained faithful. The little verse says, yesterday the Lord helped me, today he did the same. How long will this continue forever? Praise his name. Right up to the present day, God is real. He's not a God just away up there, but he's a God down here, living within them, caring for them, providing for them, and meeting their needs. What about us today? We thank God for our salvation. But you know, we need to take time to remember his goodness. For when we remember his goodness, we remember his greatness. We remember his care, his compassion. And we realize that Jesus, even when he was walking the earth ministering, it says he was moved with compassion towards them. He's still the same today. We may have changed through the passage of time, but by my God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And when we remember, we remember that our God is not a God that is limited, but a limitless God. Praise his wonderful name. God said, remember. Then God said, forget. God told them to forget. Memory is a mixed blessing. It can excite us, it can thrill us, or it can be a curse. It can hinder us, it can cause us to fear and be full of dread. The Apostle Paul, writing in Philippines 3, says, Forgetting those things which are behind, I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. There were many things in his past, past experiences that would hold him back. But he said he forgot them. He left them with the Lord. He left them under the blood. And he was prepared to move on. But I feel very much God is saying a little more than that when he told the Egyptians to forget. He was not not telling them to forget God, to forget what God was able to do, to forget what God had done, but forget the way in which he met the need. In Isaiah 37, we see Israel in difficulties again, but as I've already referred to it, he didn't bring plagues to bring them out of the difficulty. He sent an angel to deal with the situation. And many today are coping with difficulties that they've experienced in the past. And in the past, God did it a particular way. And today, they're in a similar situation. And they're saying, well, God's not hearing my prayer. God's not meeting my need. God's not responding to my situation. And they've come to that conclusion because they're expecting God to do today the same what he did many years earlier on. And yet God is answering. God is moving. God is meeting needs, but they're not seeing it. You know, 
the scriptures present to us that our God is a God of variety. He's not a God who's limited to only one way of meeting a particular need. We read in, in Mark 10 of Bartimaeus who came to Jesus. He had a conversation with him. He told Jesus he wanted to receive a sight. And Jesus says, go your way. And as he made his way, his height was restored to him. And yet, we're made aware of a blind man who was brought to Jesus in St. John chapter 9. Jesus spat on the ground. He made clay. He put it on his eyes. He told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And yet, in Matthew 15, we're told that they brought the halt, the lame, the, the blind to him. They laid them at Jesus' feet and he healed them all. What is Jesus saying? I believe he's saying these words, that you may know that I am the Lord. I'm not tied to one situation and one means. Their need was the same. The outcome was the same. But the outworking of the outcome was completely different. Again, we are presented in Matthew 8, where a leper came to Jesus and he reached out his hand, he touched him, and he says, I am willing, be clean. In Luke, we have 10 lepers who came to Jesus, and his instruction to them was simply, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. And yet, in 2 Kings chapter 5, we have the most famous leper of all, Naaman. And the instruction of God to Naaman was, go wash seven times in Jordan. And God is saying that you may know that I am the Lord. God said, forget, not forget my goodness, not forget what I am able to do, but don't tie me, don't tie my hands that I've got to answer it this particular way. We've got to give God freedom and let God be who he is and what he is. It may be outside our thinking, but God knows what he's doing and he doesn't make mistakes. Praise his wonderful name. And then God said, get excited. I'm going to do a new thing. Are we open for new things? You know, so often I'm not into new things for the sake of new things, but I'm open to God when God is leading and God is directing. We need to get rid of this mentality. This is the way we've done it for years. This is the way we've operated for years. And when God wants to move, we say, well, we don't do it that way here. We don't have it this way. But God said to the children of Israel, get excited. I'm going to do a new thing. He says to us here this morning, get excited. The good has been good. God has been faithful. God has blessed. But I believe what we have experienced is nothing in comparison to what we will experience. For God's word says he can do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think. And sometimes I sit in a, a time of prayer and wait on the Lord and my memory goes wild. You know, and after a while, I say, you'll catch yourself on. 
there's ways are locked up. <laughs> but to realize that no matter how wild our thoughts and thinking may be, God can do exceedingly far above that. This praise is wonderful name. Are we ready for God's new thing? I go back to, ne- to Naaman in Second Kings 5. The Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captives from the land of Israel. Among that was a young girl. And as I thought on this young girl, no doubt she wouldn't have chosen Syria as a place of destination. She definitely wouldn't have chosen the manner in which she traveled to Syria. Yet God was in charge. God was planning. God was outworking his plan and purpose. She didn't say, why am I here? What have I done to deserve this? But I feel very much by her attitude, it bears testimony that this young lady was a believer in God. She was trusting in God. She was resting in God. She didn't read what Paul wrote in Romans 8 and 28. But if she had, I believe, she would be in full agreement with it. For Paul wrote, For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And as she found herself in Syria, she found herself in place where God wanted her to be. She was going to be the one that was going to set the ball rolling of God's plan of bringing a family a group of people into faith of healing a man, one of prominence, one of importance. And as I thought of that, God was going to bring revival into Syria. Maybe not big numbers, but I believe he's going to have an impact. He's going to have a foothold in that land of Syria. And of course, she spoke to her her mistress, who was Naaman's wife, She spoke to Naaman, and we find Naaman at the door of Elisha's house. And he was full of expectation. But what did Elisha do? He sent a servant out and said, go wash seven times in Jordan. And the scriptures tell us he was furious. He turned his chariot round. He was about to head home and back to where he came from. But you know, Naaman was in God's plan and purposes as well as little mate. And can I say to you this morning, there are many Christians who are living a second-class lifestyle when God has a first-class lifestyle planned for them. And it's not they're not believing in God, but they've got this attitude. God didn't do it the way I expected it to happen. So if it didn't happen that way, it's not happening. And this for Naaman was the situation. Naaman said, I thought Elisha would have come out. He would have called on his God. He would have laid his hands upon me and that would be it. But he was told, go wash seven times in Jordan. He was prepared to continue with life as it was. A life of sickness because of leprosy. A life of separation because of leprosy. A life of confinement because of leprosy. A life that would be cut short because of leprosy. 
And God had planned a completely different life for him, a life of healing, a life of fellowship with God, a life of fulfillment, of joy, of happiness, of gladness. That's what God had planned for him. But God hadn't given up on Naaman. For I'm reminded of the words that God spoke to Ananias in Acts chapter 9 when he sent Ananias to speak to Saul of Tarsus. He is a chosen vessel. And although it's not written in Scripture regarding Naaman, I feel it so aptly applies to this man. For God not only had the little maid in place for the fulfillment of his plans and purposes, he also had a servant there. No doubt an Israelite who had been carried off and captive, and he reasoned with him. And you know, the result was that Naaman stepped off his chariot, went down into Jordan, he dipped seven times, and he came up not only healed, but he came up a believer in God. God had transformed his life. And I can only but imagine the impact of such a prominent individual coming to faith in God and having a miraculous healing as he had, what impact it would have on his nation and on the people round about him. But can I say also, many Christians are living a second-class lifestyle simply because they're not seeing what God is doing. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we have the king of Syria making war against Israel. We have him during the night. He surrounds the city of Dotham where Elisha is lodging. And when Elisha gets up in the morning and stands on the battlements of the city, he sees the Assyrian army surrounding the city. His servant comes up and he's froze to the spot. He's panicking. He sees the Assyrian army. He's full of doom and gloom. As far as he's concerned, life is over. This is the end. I'm finished. He's standing under a dark cloud. He says, there's no hope. And Elisha looks at him, and he makes a prayer, and he says, oh Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. He was seeing the Assyrian army, but he wasn't seeing God's army as Elisha was. And God touched his eyes with that holy eye salve. The vision was cleared, and in a split moment, that which had grounded him to the spot for fear and dread, that cloud that was hanging over him disappeared. And he was like Elisha. He saw the Assyrian army, but he saw the soldiers and chariots of fire on the hills surrounding. He saw God's plan he saw God's provision for the situation that they found themselves in. And as you read on, you find out there wasn't an arrow fired, there wasn't a sword drawn, there wasn't a spear cast. God was in the situation. Elisha went down among them. They didn't recognize him. He told them, you know, the man you're looking for isn't here. He led them into Samaria. They were surrounded in Samaria. The king wanted to kill them. And Elisha says, would you kill those you've captured? Elisha told them, make a feast for them. He fed them and he sent them on their way home. And they never came back to disturb uh, the children of Israel again. 
we need to see God's plan. I believe when Elisha stood on the battlements of the city, he was full of excitement because he saw God's plan. When the young man had his eyes opened and he saw God's plan, he was changed from fear and dread to a young lad full of excitement because he saw God's plan. Let's get excited. God said, I will do a new thing. The prophet Jeremiah says, in Jeremiah chapter 29, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is the word of the Lord to his people. We are his people this morning. Aren't you glad you belong to Jesus? Aren't you glad you have that personal relationship with Jesus this morning? And aren't you glad that God is a faithful God? God it doesn't lie. God, what God says, he will fulfill. God said, remember. God said, forget. God said, get excited. But God also said that you may know, that men may know, that the world may know that I am the Lord. Thank you very much.